Kid number 318. Maybe every hour. Every hour. internet folks and for all the people here in the room, we are only two weeks away from homecoming weekend, which is not something that we created. It's something that our internet listeners created. Years and years ago, there was a family that used to come on that weekend and began calling it homecoming weekend. And then little by little, more and more people joined in. So there are people coming from the other side of the planet to come be with us here at GCA just because we preach the gospel, try to be honest with the Bible, and we put it on the Internet. 
and that has attracted folks from all over the place. There is a group of people in Pakistan, in the Christian colony over there, surrounded by Muslims and Buddhists, but there is a woman over there who faithfully listens to us each week and then transcribes the message and gives it to her minister who then preaches it the following week to the 30 or 40 people that gather there. So this internet ministry that we have continues to bear fruit that we couldn't have possibly planned. We couldn't have decided that we were going to get on the internet and that somebody in England was going to hear us or somebody in Germany or somebody in South America was going to hear us. We couldn't have planned that. But it happened because God, who is sovereign, decided to use the preaching of his word to draw his people, his elect, out of the world and to uh, bring them to faith in his son. And I find it really quite remarkable. So in two weeks, it's homecoming. Now what that means is on Saturday, there will be a meeting here in the GCA building starting at 4 o'clock. And our deacons will be doing the preaching that day. And then after we're finished here, more or less around 6, we'll all leave here. We're planning to be at Farmer's Restaurant in Murfreesboro about 6.30. They have a very good buffet. It's very good food. But Bertrill and her family are in the midst of moving, so she won't be able to do the cooking. So we're going to the buffet in Murfreesboro. And they've been very kind in uh, the way that they have arranged things for us. So there will be a separate section of the restaurant that's cordoned off for our group. If you do come, all they're going to do is count your head. They're not going to take money from you. They're just going to count your head. They're going to give us one ticket for how many heads they've counted, and we're going to pay that ticket. So come have dinner with us that night, because after all, you've paid for it already. The way that you have contributed to the ongoing ministry of GCA is why we can afford to do such things. So come and eat with us. Sunday morning, we will not be in this building. There will be a sign on the front door to remind you that there's nobody in this building. We will be meeting around the corner at the Smyrna Senior Center, which is a much larger hall that we have rented from them. The last several years, they have been very cordial to us in allowing us to use their room for our Saturday night banquet This year, we're going to use it for our Sunday morning service, our communion service, and the potluck that is going to follow. I don't believe in luck, so we've been calling it pot provenance. But come and eat with us and come and have communion with us. Come be with us that morning. That is Resurrection Sunday morning and our annual communion service. So that's our plan for a homecoming. I hope you can all be here with us. Now, let's start this morning by saying I received an email recently that asked a question that I have answered a few times over the years, but I think it's such a good question that it needs to be considered yet again. The question was, how do you know that what you are teaching 
given all the various denominations and all the different approaches out there to the Bible, how do you know that what you're teaching is true? How do you know that you have the right approach to the Bible and the right approach to Christianity? How do you know that? And I wrote back to the fella and said, easy. And I'm going to tell you the answer. It's because all man-made religion and way too much of what's called Christianity in the world is all about what human beings have to do in order to please or satisfy the standards that they have imposed on God. In other words, all of human religion is about men seeking God. And they think that they can earn God's favor through the things that they do. Whether that's killing infidels, that's a religious idea in the world today. Whether that's going through the various cycles of reincarnated life, until you finally reach nirvana by doing enough good works in one of those lifespans that you have broken your own karma, so finally God is going to accept you on the basis of you finally perfecting your own life. That's a religious idea out there. Or whether it's keeping the law so perfectly, so perpetually, so continually that God has to let you into his heaven because you did the stuff. All man-made religion can be broken down into rules that human beings have to follow in order to receive whatever the reward is. It is all man seeking God. Christianity, biblical Christianity, unique in the history of the world, biblical Christianity says just the opposite. God is seeking men. That's the opposite of all world religion. Any religion that you hear that starts with you, what you got to do, is the wrong religion. Because whatever it is, and Paul's going to get into it this morning, whatever it is, you simply can't do it by virtue of the fact that you are sinful, growing older, decaying, incapable. So Christianity, genuine Christianity, biblical Christianity is the story of redemptive history in which God seeks men who he has chosen, who he has elected, who he has put his grace and kindness on, who he has drawn to himself for his own glory. And that is the essential difference between what we're preaching here and what's being preached all over the world. Unless men are preaching the truth of the gospel, and I would even argue the truth of sovereign grace gospel, which recognizes God's sovereignty and that salvation is a result of grace. Unless human beings are saying that, then they are telling you what you've got to do, and they're starting with you, and therefore you get the glory. You get to stand up and say, I did the stuff. Whatever that stuff was, whatever the requirement of that version of God was, I did the stuff, therefore God is obligated to give me whatever the reward is. If it's 70 virgins, if it's breaking the cycle of life, if it's 
whatever the version, whatever the, the religion is. And again, too much of Christianity says, you've got to do, and if you do, and if you're mostly good at what you do, then God is going to reward you for having done the good stuff, and he will be obligated to save you as a result of what you did. You. It all starts with you. It's you-centric. It's all about you. That's wrong. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible is about God, the Bible is about Christ, and the Bible is about him saving people who could otherwise never be saved. Therefore, God gets all the glory. So if you hear some theological theory out there and you want to assess whether it's true or not, just ask yourself, who gets the glory out of this? And if anyone other than God and his son get the glory, that's wrong. That's not biblical. That's not Christianity. That's some aberration. But genuine Christianity gives all the glory to God because he alone is the sovereign actor in the salvation of people. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Does that make sense? Yes, Does that make sense? Yes. Oh, good, you are here. Okay, good. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We have been working our way verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And really, to start at chapter 4 is a difficult start because it begins with the word, therefore... And the general rule in Bible interpretation is whenever you see a therefore, go see what it's there for. That's the rule. And so we can't really start at four because it's the continuation of Paul's thought that he has developed in chapter three. In chapter three, he has already said that we are not ministers of the ministry of death. A moment ago, I mentioned that there was a group that was transcribing my sermons One of the questions they asked me this week was, why do you yell when you say ministry of death? (laughs) Was there any significance to that? I said, no, I just do it for emphasis. The ministry of death. I mean, Paul used the language and I, I just emphasized it. Ministry of condemnation. So Paul says we are not ministers of that. And then he defines it. It's the ministry of the letter of the law. He says that's not who we are, the diakonos, the servants of. We are not ministering the law back to you. You have already been blood-bought. You have already been fully redeemed. You are already saved perfectly by a perfect Savior who made a perfect sacrifice that was accepted by God. Therefore, I am not driving you back to the law And telling you that you have to adhere to the things that Moses said. In fact, he said that the surpassing glory of the new covenant has made the old covenant fade away. The old covenant is gone because of the superiority of the new covenant. So he says, we are ministers of that new covenant. And whereas the old covenant brought death, the new covenant brings eternal life. And then he said, and and really, who's adequate for this? Because he knew who he was. He knew what he was like. 
He knew that he had been killing Christians. He knew that he had been persecuting the church. He knew that he studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He knew that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He knew what he was like. And the fact that Christ would choose him to go and preach this glorious gospel of the new covenant of the sufficiency of Christ to save both Jew and Gentile, he was constantly amazed by the fact that God would pick somebody like him to go and do that who's adequate for any of this and he has to admit my adequacy comes from God and my adequacy okay you say it (laughs) oh you show off my adequacy comes from God and from telling the truth that is the acid test are you telling the truth about God It doesn't matter how many degrees, it doesn't matter how many doctorates, it doesn't matter how many uh, places you've attended seminary, it doesn't matter how many people have put their stamp of approval on you, unless you are actually telling the truth of the gospel, you're still not advancing the cause of Christ, and you're still not telling the truth about God. Now, in the book of Job, and I point this out constantly, At the end of the book of Job, Job is told by God that he has to make a sacrifice and pray for his three friends because his three friends have come ostensibly to succor him through his problems, but they have also told him that God could not have and would not have caused this kind of trouble in Job's life If Job hadn't done something, Job had to be the cause. There it is, you-centric theology. It had to be about something you did, and then God reacted. And at the end of the book, after God has spent several chapters saying, I do everything. Where were you? When did you do anything? After God has finished saying, if you can do any of the things that I can do, like bring down the proud or cause lightning to strike or... As soon as you can do any of those things, then I'll admit that your own hand can save you. Your own arm has enough power to save you. But until you can do what I can do, then you have to recognize my complete superiority over you. And he tells Job, you have to sacrifice and pray for your three friends because my wrath is kindled against them because they did not say what was right about me. That's God talking. And that's arguably the oldest book in the Bible. God starts right out with, say what is right about me, or I get angry. My wrath is kindled against Job's three friends because they didn't say what was right. So Paul is going to argue in chapter 4 that he didn't do what the other folks in Corinth had done. There were apparently detractors who had come in, people who had... uh, tried to raise money off the gospel, and so he didn't raise any money off of them, or people who had tried to change the gospel, to warp the gospel. According to the book of Galatians, he said they pervert the gospel and try to make it more acceptable, more approachable to human flesh, make it more you-centric. And he says, I didn't do any of that. I told you the truth. And I did it with all honesty. And he said, that's where my adequacy comes from, from telling the truth. 
You know, when you hear somebody tell you the truth about God and the truth about Christ, your first question is not, well, what's their educational background? Or even, what's their denominational background? Or even, how long have you been doing this? Instead, when you hear the truth and it lines up with the Bible, you don't care about all that stuff as much as you care about the purity of the truth that's being preached. And so Paul argues that it is his truthfulness, his honesty in laying out God's word to them that is his adequacy. So with all of that introduction behind us, I think we have to read chapter 3 so that we can get to chapter 4 and hit therefore, and then we'll know what the therefore is therefore. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Well, the answer is yes. Paul is really beginning to commend himself because he's going to argue in chapter 4 that there are others who are doing it wrongly, and he's not like them. Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our epistle, our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. And such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from God. Who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, <laughs> I had to say that for my Pakistani friends. Okay. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones, that would be the Ten Commandments written in stone, the ministry of death, came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently on the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Having therefore such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not as Moses, who used to put a veil over his face that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away, but their minds were hardened. For until this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, 
because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord came the Spirit. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now we know what the therefore is there for. Because he is saying, because all this is true, and because the ministry of death has faded away, and it has been surpassed in glory by the new covenant which remains, and since we are given the ministry of the new covenant, Paul, who had gone through all kinds of torture, all kinds of trials, all kinds of problems, and who is going to list some of those again here in just a moment to remind his readers of how difficult this ministry has been for him, says, nevertheless, I received this ministry. I didn't go looking for it. I didn't sign up for it. I didn't audition for it. I was out killing Christians and persecuting the church when Christ chose me. And he knocked me down and he shined a light on me, and he blinded me, and he made me go to the house of one of the Christians I was going to go kill. And he had to pray for me so that I would get my sight back. And right in that moment, Christ said, I'm going to show him what great things he has to suffer. He's going to be my emissary. He's going to go and preach my word to Gentiles and to kings and to Jews but he's also going to suffer for it. So Paul said, since we have this ministry of the new covenant, as we have received mercy, we don't lose heart. Okay, so be honest. We'll see how many of you can be honest. Nobody nudge anybody. <laughs> have you always been 100% committed, super Christian your whole life? Or has it been tough? been tough and Paul's going to say it is it's just been hard it's a struggle this Christianity he's going to finish this chapter by admitting that the things that we believe in the things that we hope for are the invisible things like the things that Steve read this morning new Jerusalem and city of gold that reaches into outer space I, I can't even imagine such a thing it's a thing we haven't seen yet, and yet, because God's word says it, we hope for it. We look forward to it. And Paul would say, that's because we received mercy from God. God has graciously brought us into this ministry of the new covenant, 
and then we receive ministry so that we do not lose heart. Because it's easy to lose heart. It's easy to reach the point where you just go, you know, it's too hard. It's too difficult. My parents don't agree with me. My friends don't like me. My boss is on top of me about, okay, stop that Christian stuff when you come to the workplace. You go out into the world and you read the news and you see how much Christianity is hated. Or you're a student and you're in college and you're just taking a a class in English. And your English professor decides to stand up and see if he can drive your Christianity out of you. There's just this constant onslaught of unchristian, ungodly Christ-hating material coming at you 24 hours a day. And after a while, it would be easy to lose heart. Easy to just give up and go along to get along. And Paul was not only facing all that and facing the people who would come into Galatia and come into Corinth behind him and then teach opposite of what he had said and try to bring people back to the law and try to circumcise Gentiles. And he was constantly in trouble. But on top of all that opposition, he was also taking beatings. Nobody in this room has taken 39 lashes. He did it five times. All because he preached about the ministry of the new covenant. And especially among the Jews, they wanted to hang on to that old covenant. Which he said is fading away. But they were even proselytizing to the old covenant. Which is why Jesus even said to the Pharisees, You compass land and sea to make one proselyte. And when you have converted him... You've made him twice the child of hell that you are. But they were out there doing it. And they're still out there doing it. They're still out there trying to proselytize people to the old covenant. That gets back to that you theology. People who want to bring legalism into Christianity and tell you what you got to do. That God will love you more or be more impressed with you if you could just do better. If you could just follow more rules, if you could just be more righteous than you already are. And I'll tell you now, you can't be more righteous than you already are because your righteousness before God is already established in Christ. And since his establishment of your righteousness is a perfect righteousness finished in his perfect work and his perfect atonement and redemption, you can't get more righteous than that. You think you're going to improve that by not playing cards? Is that going to make you better? No way. Christ has accomplished everything to secure you with God eternally. So anyway, it's tough. It's a tough road to follow. So where are you going to find your adequacy? Where are you going to find your ability? When you lose heart, what are you going to do? He says here, we've received mercy so that we would not lose heart. You can search your navel from now until you're dead. You can look internally for the rest of your life. And you're not going to find the courage, the gumption, the wherewithal to walk this Christian life. It has to be God who gives you the mercy and the grace to continue on. That's why among us Reformed folk... The fifth of the doctrines of grace 
is the perseverance of the saints. Because some people come along, kind of like Jesus talked about the various kinds of soil. You're going to see people who, once the trials of this life come along, even though they have professed Christ, even though they have appeared Christian, they're going to fall away because the trials of this life and the deceitfulness of riches and Satan, the God of this world, is going to snatch away what little they had. But genuine Christianity perseveres, continues on, holds on even in hard times. Why? Because we receive that mercy from God. Because it's God's enterprise. It's God who began it. It's God who planned it. It's God who chose you. It's God who redeemed you. It's God who wrote your name down in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. He's not going to lose you. Therefore, he's going to give you the mercy to keep persevering even in the times when it's incredibly difficult. Anybody want to admit that they've had some incredibly difficult times? Yeah. It ain't easy. It's just worth it. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But here's what we have done. Now, at men's meeting on Tuesday night, we were talking about a group that calls itself the Free Grace Movement. And they so emphasize grace in all things that they truncate the places where Paul talks about living like your Christians. And since they have the freedom to just kind of pick and choose their verses, they seem to kind of avoid those verses that would talk about your obligation to live righteously before God. Not so that you can obligate him to save you, but having been saved, living a life that you would hope is pleasing to him. Well, here's another place where Paul, after talking about God making us adequate, after God giving us mercy, after God accomplishing everything necessary through the finished work of Christ, then he turns around and says, and we have renounced the hidden things because of shame. So it's not just as Christians we can live any old way we want to and we're saved in a hyper-Calvinistic sort of way. We're saved by grace and therefore our actions don't mean anything. Paul says, having been saved, those things that I'm ashamed of, I got rid of. And you know you've got stuff in your closet that you're ashamed of. You know there's stuff in your memory that makes you wake up in the middle of the night and go, oh, gee, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't been there. I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I, oh, yeah, there was that one real bad night, bad week, bad month. There was that really bad year. That decade had questions. Because you know you're ashamed of some of the places you've been and the things that you've done. Paul says now, because I have this ministry, I've put away the things that I'm ashamed of. And then he says, I'm not walking in craftiness. I'm not walking in cleverness. The best example I can give you of this, it's been a long time since I've told an Elder Ward story, so it seems like a good time to tell an Elder Ward story. He one time, as a demonstration, said to uh, our friend Marlon Tillman, you see that woman right there? She loves and trusts me so much that if I just walked up to her and said, give me $20, 
She wouldn't even question it. She'd just give me $20. She wouldn't ask why, what I'm using it for. She just loves me so much as her pastor and trusts me so implicitly that she would just give me $20. My job is not to take advantage of the fact that she would do that. I, I thought that's perfect. You see, if he was crafty, he would make sure to develop that kind of love between him and other people so that he could take advantage of them. But a person who's not operating in craftiness, who's not trying to build up his own name, who's not building the next university of Jim McClarty, a person who is more interested in Christ than he is in his own reputation doesn't have to work any sort of chicanery in order to get you to love Christ. You're going to love Christ because of what he did for you, because of what his word says about you. And if, if we just tell the truth about Christ with no guile, with no craftiness, with no cunning or cleverness, just say the truth, then that relationship between you and God is going to be established and, and I personally can just stay out of the way. And you and God can work it out. We're not walking in craftiness. Or, and this is a key phrase, or adulterating the word of God. Okay, so what he means is, people who know the word of God, who read the word of God, who think, well, people wouldn't be able to handle that. That whole thing about predestination all that stuff about election, or all that stuff about how human beings are innately sinful and incapable of doing anything that would please God. That's just harsh. That's just difficult. So maybe I'll sugarcoat it just a little bit. If you want an example of that, when you go home today, turn on any religious television. I don't care which channel. And you'll find somebody kind of compromising, kind of dumbing down, kind of sugarcoating the word of God because they want to be popularly accepted. And so they break the word of God down into little bite-sized chunks so that it is more approachable to human flesh. So that human flesh can read the word of God and not have to feel bad. Look, if you've never repented for your sin, if you've never reached the point where you have felt bad about who you are, then you still haven't understood your need of a savior. Until you come to the end of yourself, you're not going to look for someone who actually can do the redemptive and saving part. So it's important that you reach the point of coming to the end of yourself, and you're only going to do that by understanding the parts of the Bible that say you're incapable. You're a sinner. You have no hope. You have no ability in yourself. That is the biblical you theology. The biblical you theology is all you bring to the party is your sinfulness and your depravity. That's all you bring. You don't bring righteousness. You don't bring goodness. You don't bring salvation. You don't bring obligation. You bring nothing except your wretchedness. David said we're worms. 
Now, I love the fact that I'm standing in front of GCA and I've just listed a whole bunch of really negative characteristics of human beings. I've called you worms. I've called you wretched. I've called you incapable. And everybody in this room went, yep. (laughs) Guilty, that's me. Yep. And we're happy about it because we know what the answer is. We know that our inadequacy is Christ's adequacy. We know that our incapability exalts the capability of Christ. We know that our sinfulness and wretchedness and depravity exalts the perfection of the finished work of redemption in Christ. So we're perfectly willing to admit, yeah, I got nothing. Uh, And so Paul would argue this. We did not walk in craftiness and we did not adulterate the word of God. If the word of God says it, we've said it. Think about Ephesians 1 and 2. Think about Romans 8, 9, 10, 11. This had to be tough stuff for that first century audience. Those people who were all wrapped up in the, the doing of Moses, who were all wrapped up in keeping the 613 ordinances and walking by the Ten Commandments. And then he comes along and says, after all your effort, let me tell you something. God, who foreknew people, decided before the foundation of the world who was saved and all that stuff you're doing is the ministry of death. That had to be so difficult for people to hear. We're sort of used to it now. It's been 2,000 years. We read it and go, yeah, that's how it works. But this was cataclysmically different than what the Jews had lived with for 1,400 years since Moses. So we do not adulterate the word of God, and I hope here at GCA we don't either. If the Bible says it, we say it. Even if I don't understand it, we'll say it. Even if I can't imagine how he could save a genuine wretch like me, I'm happy that it says it. Even if I can't comprehend New Jerusalem, I believe it. Even if I wake up every day saying, I hope Jesus comes back today, and I do. I wake up every day and think, I don't want to see sundown. I hope Jesus comes back today. If not today, then at least this week, this month, this year, I hope Jesus comes back soon. And the fact that he hasn't yet hasn't changed the fact that I hope it and I believe it. Why? Because it says it. And even if all the evidence is to the contrary, if it says it, I believe it. Amen. You know, the definition of faith that I like so much is standing on the word of God and believing it is more true than your circumstances. I like that definition because your circumstances will tell you God's word's not true. But faith stands on the word of God and says it is true despite the circumstances. We have renounced the hidden things, the shameful things, and we're not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. But by the manifestation of truth, we are commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So chapter 3 began with, are we again commending ourselves? And I said, yeah, he kind of is. But here in verse 2, he's saying that it's the manifestation of the truth. It's the telling of the truth. 
if they had lined up and said, Paul, where's your seminary degree? What are you the doctor of? Which denomination ordained you? If they had asked all those questions, he can't answer it. But the adequacy, but the love that was formed between him and the congregation was based in tell the truth. I have told the truth, and because I've told you the truth, that's how I am commended to you. Look, if you knew me, let me talk about me for just a moment. I've been trying to talk about me less and less, but I'm a pretty good example at the moment. Here's what I know about me. I've got some college. I was an English major, music minor. My whole background, music and English. I didn't know that God was going to use both of those gifts and abilities later on in life in the ministry. I had no idea that's what was happening. I was just studying what I wanted to study. And then I've never been to seminary. In fact, this is a bad joke, but among many of my preacher friends, we've taken to referring to it as cemetery. But anyway, I've never been to seminary because I had the very good fortune of going to churches that believed in teaching the Bible and raising up the saints of the Lord in the knowledge of God. Everything I know, everything I'm telling you, I've gotten from the Bible and from churches that taught me. So why do you all come here on a Sunday morning, point at me and say, that's our pastor? How did I become pastor guy? This was not my intention. My first intention was rock star. That was the plan. So now I've become a pastor by default. And why do you all have confidence and show up here every week and listen to me? Not because I have degrees. Not because I'm Dr. So-and-so. Not because I have a long list of credentials that I can give you from denominations that have given me the right hand of fellowship. You're here because week after week you hear me read the Bible and just tell the truth. What does the Bible say? And because of my English background and because I'm Irish and I was born with the gift of gab, I have the ability to read the Bible and then express it to you. And that's why you come back. Because what Paul said is, Here's what commends me to you, the manifestation of truth. And as long as the truth is being manifested, then that's the commendation from God to the people he has chosen, to the people he has elected, to the people he is teaching. And it's a wonderful relationship. I don't know how I got here. This was not me sitting down one day and craftily figuring out. You know, if I just do this and this, I can probably make some money. Because so far that hasn't worked. (laughs) But the manifestation of the truth, I'm owned by the truth. I'm sold out to the truth of God's word. I have to express the truth. I don't have any choice in the matter. As Paul said, I'm still trying to apprehend that which has apprehended me. And so for a long time, there was me and two or three other people in my living room. Because I had to teach the Bible. I don't get it. I just know I got to do it. Okay, that's the end of talking about me, except that I think that helps you understand what Paul was driving at. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, 
commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God now don't discount that phrase in the sight of God he was very aware that as he was promoting the ministry of the new covenant that in everything he was doing God was watching God was there God was participant God was providing mercy and grace to endure it and so he recognized that he was not trying to please human beings he was not trying to please men he was trying to please God I have often used the phrase I play to an audience of one if you're learning something along the way good for you I hope you are but I'm not trying to make you happy I'm not trying to please you we can find something else to do that we both enjoy and then we can have some kind of fellowship and friendship together but when it comes to preaching God's word I'm not going to dumb it down to make it more approachable to you because I'm not trying to please you I'm trying to please the one who put me in this job so we are commending ourselves to every man's conscience by telling the truth in the sight of God and even if this is why I think the big four on chapter four is kind of a badly placed chapter marking because now he's going to go back to what he's already said in chapter three and even if our gospel the good news that we are preaching even if our gospel is veiled it's veiled to those that are perishing wow okay this gets into real sovereignty I've been having a back and forth email discussion with a fellow recently about the fact that God is in charge of human salvation but he's also in charge of human condemnation and he wrote back I, I loved the phrase he wrote back and said wow the God of the Bible is so different than the God I grew up with <laughs> you're agreeing Tony that was a lot of head nodding yeah the God of the Bible is very different than we would conceive him of if we were just making up a God he wouldn't be like this the God who is in charge of human salvation and human condemnation if the gospel that we preach is veiled so that people can't understand it then it's veiled to them because they are perishing the same way that we understand the gospel because we're being saved we're not saved because we figured out the Bible we didn't figure out the Bible and then God said well okay since you seem to know the secret code I'm gonna let you in that's not the way God works he has already chosen to save you therefore he has revealed his gospel to you so among the saved the gospel is enlightenment the veil is taken away in Christ we're not part of the old covenant we see the surpassing glory of the new covenant because we're in the process of being saved but if that gospel is veiled to anyone it is veiled to those people that are perishing have you ever spoken the gospel to somebody talked about Christ to somebody and you can just tell they don't care they don't want to hear it they go everywhere from uh, completely unimpressed all the way to people who hate it I've also had the haters come after me well according to this that is all part of God's sovereignty that God has purposely veiled the truth from them 
because they are among the perishing. That's sad. I just saw Marilyn shiver. She just went, hmm, because it's true, because it's difficult, because we would like to think that everybody on the planet gets a fair shot. But if God is absolutely sovereign, and if God has already decided who it is he's going to save, I wrote to that fellow that I mentioned a moment ago, and I said, look at 2 Thessalonians where Paul writes that when the Antichrist is on the planet, that God is going to bring followers to the Antichrist, and Paul writes, God will give them a strong delusion so they will believe the lie and be condemned. Wow, that's mighty, mighty sovereign. He's going to keep them from ever knowing the truth and cause them to follow the ways of Satan because they're among the condemned. So if our gospel is misunderstood, if it's hated, if it's veiled, it's because those people are among the condemned. Now, our place is not to go around deciding who the elect and the condemned are. That's not our job. Our job is not to go, well, they're, they're not listening to the gospel right now, so they're obviously among the condemned, and they're eternally damned, and that's too bad. Because if you had come and talked to me about the gospel when I was in my 20s, being rock and roll boy, I didn't care. I, I, was, I cared about... Two things, sticks and something to hit with it. That was all I cared about. <laughs> and how fast I could do it. Yes. Yeah. That's what I cared about. I didn't care about the gospel. Was I among the condemned at that point? No, I was among the saved. My name was already written in the Lamb's Book of Life. God just hadn't interrupted my life and introduced himself to me yet and then put me into the ministry of his word, which is astounding to me. So it's not our job when we see somebody who either doesn't understand the gospel the way we would understand it, who doesn't understand the finer points of theology, or who wants nothing to do with the gospel, it's not our job to say, well, then you're condemned eternally, and God cannot save you, because God gets great glory out of saving great sinners. And remember that Paul had you met him when he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, you would have said he is utterly committed to the ministry of death and he's under condemnation. And yet, God who can save anybody, saved him. Even him. God saved even Michael. God saved even Jeff. And much to all our amazement, even Micah. I know. Because none of us were out there looking for him. He was looking for us. He was seeking us. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Look at the next verse. Boy, if you think you had to shiver at the previous verse. In whose case, the God of this world, who, who is that a reference to? Satan, Satan himself. Jesus admits he's the God of this world, the prince of darkness, the one who Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world. That's the English translation of a single Greek word, the cosmokratos, 
darkness of this world rulers and spiritual wickedness in high places. That's what we really wrestle against. So in the case of those people to whom the gospel is veiled, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's why people don't get it. It's not just their natural human incapability. It is also the God of this world making sure that they never understand it. And God, who is sovereign, is utilizing the means, the secondary cause of Satan himself to keep people blinded who are in the perishing category. That's tough. That's hard. But it's what Paul says. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Again, logic and honesty. If somebody came up to you and said, I'll give you a million dollars. Okay, they've got your attention. Okay, a million bucks, how do I get that? What do I got to do? How do I get that? I'm going to give it to you as a free gift. Okay, give it to me as a free gift. Stick it in my bank account right now. Go. Well, you'd be all interested. Okay, so now someone comes to you and says, I have a gift better than all of the riches of this world that I will give you freely. It is eternal life that you don't even have to accomplish. It's been accomplished in Christ. Who would turn that down? Who would say, no, I don't want that? I mean, you'd say yes to money that's going to perish when you do. But I'm talking about everlasting life in the kingdom of God. And yet there are people who say, no, I don't want that. I reject that. I don't believe that. Why? Why? Why would anybody not accept that? Okay, we're out here preaching. We're out here telling people the truth of the gospel, the unadulterated truth of the gospel. We're out here preaching to everybody who will listen. And some people, the lights go on and everybody's home. And they get it and they hear the word of God and it is the word of life to them. And that very same word, that very same message, that very same preachment of the gospel, somebody else will hear it and go, I don't get it. I don't want it. I'm not interested. I'm going to go play golf on Sunday. I don't have time for church. I'm going to sleep in. I like the Sunday times. I like to sit in bed and read the newspaper. I don't care about the things of God. What's the difference? The difference isn't the word. That same word brings that scent of life to life to some people and brings that scent of death to death to other people. And what's the difference? What's the deciding factor? Paul's going to say it later. Who has made you to differ? Who has made you different from the person who wants nothing to do with God? Well, the difference is not you. The difference is God himself, the God of glory, who chose you before the foundation of the world, who enlightened you to the truth, even as the God of this world was darkening people to the truth. Amen. And you ought to be mighty, mighty happy about that. You ought to be. I'm surprised you're still in your seats. You should be like Pentecostal crazy right now. You should be so happy about that. 
I've just told you one of the best things you're ever going to hear in your stupid little life. And so far, what I got in reaction was Steve mouthed, amen. That's what I got for it. Say it louder. Amen. Well, there it is. I mean, it's such good, good news because the God of this world is out there blinding the minds of unbelievers, but he can't get you. He can't convince you. He can't change you. Why? Because you've received the mercy to persevere. Why? Verse 5, for we do not preach ourselves. We preach Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. So this is Jesus' ministry. This is Jesus' gospel. The essence of the message is Jesus. It's Christocentric. It's not you-centric. It's about what Christ has accomplished, and that's the essence of the gospel preaching. And we don't preach ourselves. If I were preaching myself to you, first off, there'd be nobody in the room. But secondly, I'd have to prove to you somehow that I have an adequacy that I just don't have. That I have the ability somehow to save you or convince you of some philosophy or, or get you involved in Dianetics or just something that I could promote to you. But if this is Christianity, it's all about Christ and him alone. It's not about us. The only participation that we have in this whole scheme is as bond servants to you so that we preach, so that we serve, so that we do the ministry of the new covenant. Now we're going to finish with verse 6 because let's be honest, I could spend the rest of my life talking about this verse. This verse fascinates me for God who said light shall shine out of the darkness okay Paul's reaching back to the book of Genesis and the whole universe was without form and void and then God spoke he didn't even make anything he didn't form anything he just spoke the word let there be light and Genesis for some reason says and there was light. That's way too simple an explanation. I want details. Took all day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's that. God just spoke, let there be light. The maker of heaven and earth, the creator of the universe, the maker of stars who knows every star individually by name and where it's placed and, and what its job is in his, in his universe. That God who can just speak things into existence. I think, by the way, that that's one of the reasons that when Jesus was being tortured and killed and beaten and spit on and when all of that was happening, Isaiah predicted and then Jesus fulfilled that he didn't say a word. And I think it's because with Jesus, words are things. He even said, don't you know that I could ask my father? He'd send a legion of angels. So he didn't say anything. An act of utter contrition and humility that he who had that kind of power at his disposal said nothing. Had he said, 
okay, stop nailing me to a cross, I'm fine. He would have been. They would have had to stop and he'd have been fine. Remember the time that the Jews thought that he had really lost his mind and he didn't want to be their king and, and so they took him, it says, to a cliff with the intention of throwing him off. And it was a mob of people. And they were there for one reason, throw Jesus down to his death. And then you read, just so simply, and he turned around and walked through the midst of them. What? (laughs) Oh, no. They're all trying to kill him. It wasn't his time yet. He can't die yet. And nobody was able to lay their hands on him when he turned around and just walked right through the middle of them. That's the kind of power he has. That's the kind of ability he has. If he didn't want to be nailed to a chunk of wood, all he has to do is say, stop it, and those people will stop. In fact, since he is the Lord of life and death, he could say, you're all dead. They'd all die, and he'd go on with his life. He has that kind of authority. With God, words are things. That's my point. God can speak to darkness. God, who is light, can duplicate the light that only he has and speak it into the universe and say, let there be light, and the universe would be lit up. I don't get all that. But I'm trying to show you how majestic, how magnificent it is that God, who is energy, who is light, can speak his own lightness into his creation. You get all that? Okay, so now the second half of the verse I'm just trying to prepare you for the second half of the verse. For God, who said, light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In other words, the one who spoke, let there be light, and the universe was enlightened, is the very one who picked you out individually and particularly and spoke to you and commanded to you, let there be light. And there was light. The same power that brought the universe into existence is the power that brought Christ into existence in your heart. That same powerful God exercised the exact same power. The power that created light in the universe created light in your heart. And as a consequence of there being light in your heart, you recognize God in the face of Christ. That when you see Christ, you see that he is everything that is necessary, everything you need to know what you need to know about God. So he says, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the same one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge. Okay, so do you know anything about Christ? You know anything about the Bible? You know anything about Christianity? Do you know anything? Do you know the basics? Do you know Jesus died? Do you know that he rose again for your salvation? Do you know the basics of Christianity? Okay, Paul argues you can't even know that except that God put the light of knowledge in you. The reason that you differ, the reason that you know what other people don't know, 
is because they're among the perishing group and you're among the being saved group and because you're in the being saved group God spoke with his almighty universe creating power he spoke light into your heart so that you could have the knowledge of God in Christ the only reason you know anything is because God told you isn't that amazing has anybody here remember the days when they would pick up the Bible and couldn't make hide nor hair out of it yeah there was a day when we opened the book and just went I don't get it Apparently, there was a guy built a boat, two animals. I don't know. I don't get it. Apparently, there's a guy named Jesus, Middle East, thousands of years ago. I don't get it. Apparently, he did miracles. I don't believe in miracles. I've never seen a miracle. So, nah, I don't know. I don't get it. And then God spoke the light of knowledge into your heart. And suddenly, you go back and you open your Bible, and it's like food to a starving man. It's like water in the desert. You can't get enough of it. I've been reading this word for more years than I want to count. I've known Tom for 30 years, which means that my, the beginning of my journey through this book is more than 30 years ago. And I read it, and I read it, and I read it, and I teach it, and I say it, and I, and I can't get enough of it. I can't seem to exhaust it. I can't seem to reach the end of it. I can't, I can't seem to reach the point where I say, okay, I've done that one. I've mastered that one. I've read other books. I read it from beginning to end, and I'm done with it. Okay, I read that book. But the Bible? I keep coming back to the Bible. I keep reading it over and over again, and every time I read it, something new jumps out of it because it is the very active and living Word of God. And the only reason that I or you or anybody has knowledge of this Word is because the God who created the universe spoke that knowledge into your heart. The same enlightening that happened in the universe to bring light to the universe brought light to your heart, you individually, you personally. God knew you that well that he made sure you weren't among the perishing. You get that? Amen and hallelujah. And praise God. And that's the gospel. And a yahoo and a yip, yip, yip. And it's just such good news. Next week we will pick up at, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And then Paul's going to talk about his inadequacy. He's going to talk about all his suffering and that the only reason for the continual suffering and inadequacy is so that God gets all the glory by making us adequate for these things. It's just such good news. It's just, it's thinking stuff. It makes you think. It makes you consider. It makes you imagine. It makes you expand your brain and and try to... uh, Imagine what it must be like, all these things that God has promised us. So I find it very engaging. All right, any questions? Yes, sir. Well, the Christian walk can be sad and sobering when a family member turns, turns against you because of your faith. Uh, and you don't want to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't think there's a person in this room who doesn't relate to that. And if you are that person, stay quiet. (laughs) But I think that's why Jesus would say that any man that doesn't hate mother, father, husband, wife, children, yea, in his own life also can't be my disciple. 
because whoever turns away from you because of Christ's sake, you have to uh, recognize that Christ is all and not let their opposition change you from your commitment and emotion to Christ. Yes, sir. Uh, Hi, Michael. Michael's here from New Jersey. Hi, Michael. Hi. It was like an AA meeting there for a moment. Hi, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm a recovering Arminian. And, yeah. know the Joel Olsteins of the world who preach a false Christ that if you believe then God will you know give you money a better job a better marriage whatever but you know I, I like to observe things and, and we can do that same thing in the sense that we can kind of use ourselves like well I used to be this and now I'm that and, and a lot of that is true you know I used to be a drunkard and now I don't drink and I used to you know, fornicate, and now I don't. But if you listen to other religions, Mormons come with very similar testimonies. And they use that to kind of be like, well, that's the hook. But like Paul says, he says, but we preach Christ crucified, not ourselves. And I think that's just a key point that we have to always remember, if Jesus said, if I am lifted up, then I will draw all men unto me. And I think it's getting back to believing in miracles, and the miracle, ultimate miracle of salvation that if I preach Christ as he's presented in the Bible and as he really is, whether people are opposed to it or not, he will save according to his purposes. Absolutely. That was a very good statement. You know, the Mormons also have what they call the inner witness. Yes. Yeah, they they know that the Joseph Smith teaching and the Brigham Young stuff, they know it's true because they have the inner witness. So it's not enough to just say, I I pick on the song all the time, and we seem to sing it every year around Resurrection Sunday. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Well, that's fine for you, but that doesn't help me. Just because you have an inner witness, so do the Mormons. So taking it back to the word, the word that doesn't change, the word of God, the testimony of Christ, that's the difference. Every Muslim who kills somebody, straps on a bomb and takes out a bus, every one of them believe in what they're doing. So what's the difference? Christ and him crucified. That's the difference. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.